Chapter One of The Mute Singer, a novel. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kelly Taylor. The Mute Singer by Anna Cora Mowat Ritchie. Chapter One Sylvie. The height of a house in Paris is by no means indicative of the grandeur of the abode. In many a remote portion of the Rue Saint-Denis stands many a dwelling, if placed beside the most sumptuous mansions of Grosvenor Square, would tower above them, and yet is the residence of a host of humble toilers for daily bread, who seem to mount nearer to the skies according to the degree of their poverty. One might almost imagine that the promise of easier access to heaven than is accorded to the rich gave them this upward tendency. In one of the lofty habitations for the lowly, a hundred and forty steps led to the apartment in the sixth story, which Edouard de la Roche lodged with his wife and daughter. The bareness of the room betokened an absence of worldly possessions. The red-tile floor had no covering, the windows no curtains, the bed no drapery. Indeed, the latter was merely a framed canvas that could be folded up at pleasure. A few yards of faded calico stretched across the further corner converted that portion into a small chamber. In one window feebly bloomed a pot of unhealthy-looking mignonette, the favorite flower of the French poor, and often to be found in their meanest abodes. The enumeration of the furniture will occupy little space. It consisted of a washstand, four rush-bottomed chairs, a low stool, a worm-eaten chest, the receptacle of the family wardrobe, a tiny charcoal cooking stove, and yonder, strangely unsuited to the place, a piano. An old battered affair, with keys as yellow as a tobacco chewer's teeth, but still a veritable piano. Just above this venerable instrument, an unpainted deal shelf held a number of broken-back books and some pieces of music, and a tin cup containing a few common flowers. Upon a corresponding shelf, on the opposite side of the room, were various kitchen utensils, neatly arranged, and a cupboard beneath enclosed a sparse supply of crockery and other household goods. It is June, and the twilight of a long summer day is approaching. Several sheets of music are scattered upon the floor. The piano is open. On the three young girls, her head rests upon one arm, which is stretched over the instrument as though she had fallen forward from exhaustion. The other arm hangs listlessly by her side. She is asleep. The outline of her underdeveloped form is delicate, yet too angular for grace. The coarse gray stocking and rough shoe cannot wholly disguise the smallness and shapeliness of a foot and ankle somewhat liberally revealed by her position. Her complexion is sickly, almost sallow in its hue. 
her features are too much sharpened by want and suffering to be deemed handsome but the mingled blandness and firmness of the mouth the thin slightly curved nostrils and the broad brow indicate force of character the only impression of beauty is conveyed by the arch of the slender eyebrows the length and darkness of the lashes that lie upon her colorless cheeks the silkiness and luxuriance of the purple-black hair that escaping from her comb sweeps down her shoulders and falls like a rich veil over the yellow piano keys her garb is very humble simply a dark blue calico dress relieved by a narrow linen collar and cuffs and a white apron her appearance is so childlike so immature that one can hardly believe that she has entered her eighteenth year close to the dingy window as though to catch the last lingering rays of light sits a pale and mournful-looking woman with a languid air she slowly draws the needle in and out of her work as though even that effort were too great for her strength pain has left a faint contraction on her brow and the shadow of weary dejection that clouds her still comely features tells that she has ceased to fight against the ills of life or rather that she has been conquered by them without ever battling at all an imperative knock breaks the silence before madame de la roche can give permission to enter the door opens and a face as sharp and sombre-hued as though it had been cut out of parchment is thrust into the room and after a twinkling gray eye a rapid survey is followed by a spare and diminutive form of an old man carrying a violin under his arm although the heavy eyebrows that meet above his prominent nose and the bristling moustache that conceals his closely folding lips retain their youthful blackness his long beard and the fringe of hair that enring his bald head are white as foam those small sharp restless eyes seem to glance everywhere in an instant and to pierce what they look upon the whole countenance is sufficiently sour to set on edge the teeth of a very impressionable associate a striking illustration of that vinegar aspect which shakespeare describes as belonging to those who will not show their teeth in the way of a smile though nestor swear the jest be laughable eh what's this he exclaimed marching up to the slumbering maiden lazy little owl this is the way she practises this is the way she makes use of her time is it she has practised five hours without stirring answered her mother in a querulous tone she fell asleep a few moments ago from sheer fatigue and i had not the heart to rouse her you know maitre bourgeot she practised faithfully seven hours every day let her have a little rest rest indeed do you suppose that i ever rest i can tell you she need not look forward to rest in our profession how she sleeps to be sure he stood for a moment contemplating the young girl who slept on undisturbed by the noise a close observer might have detected something like compassion under the musician's rude mask of severity don't disturb her pleaded the mother you are always so hard upon her 
those words extinguished the faintly kindling spark of pity and awakened the spirit of contradiction ever strong in maitre bougeot's breast don't disturb her when it's the hour for her lesson that's a pretty joke really you are quite facetious madame de la roche do you suppose i have so many hours to spare that i can teach her for nothing and yet suit my time to hers eh do you think that he turned to sylvie and shook her rudely shouting in her ears wake up wake up i say you're not good-looking enough to be indulged with playing the sleeping beauty sylvie awoke with a start perhaps amazement caused her to open her eyes more widely than was natural but they seemed too large for her delicate face judging from the color of her hair eyebrows and lashes one expected to see a pair of black eyes and could not but wonder at finding the irises of a clear and not very deep blue have i been sleeping she asked gathering up her hair in confusion oh mother why did you not wake me i deserve well to be scolded maitre bourgeot added she looking up into his face with a smile that said but do not give me my dessert do not scold me that smile while it displayed her white and regular teeth showed that the mouth was too expansive for beauty though somewhat redeemed by the flexibility of the lips it was essentially a singer's mouth don't chatter scarecrow to your lesson let me hear you sing the air we tried yesterday sylvie succeeded in prisoning the abundant tresses which had several times baffled her as she attempted to gather them in her small hands maitre bougeot laid his violin upon the table as tenderly as though it had been a living thing indeed it is doubtful whether he would have dealt so gently with anything alive took his place at the piano and played a brief prelude sylvie sang and beethoven himself could not have asked for a voice better suited by its depth and richness to make vocal his glorious strain as you listened to her and looked at her you could not conceive that from that poor fragile feeble little frame could issue such a volume of delicious sound a contralto voice so powerful so clearly sweet so touchingly sympathetic so rare in its combinations and quality and her own melody seemed to transform her as it gushed from her lips the rosy flush that leapt up into her face extinguished its sallow tint the large mouth took a symmetrical shape the great eyes filled with a dewy lustre and grew dark through the dilation of their pupils mingling all the softness of the blue with the brilliancy of black orbs the angular figure assumed an attitude of unconscious grace the very spirit of music thrilled through and through her whole being and moulded its external into a new shape as she ceased maitre bougeot gave a growl which might have struck upon a stranger's ear as a signal of displeasure but sylvie comprehended his rough approbation he placed page after page of music before her and she sang on not a word was uttered between the pieces the mother had allowed her work to drop upon her lap but the expression of her countenance told that she did not dare make any comment or breathe a word of praise 
During an interval in which Sylvie was trying to rearrange the music which had fallen on the floor while she slept, the buzz of whispering outside the door became audible in the silence. Maitre Bougeot turned sharply around on his stool. There they are again. I'll not allow it. I'll not have my pupils sing to an audience that don't pay. He made a rush to the door, but the movement had been heard without, and the sound of scampering feet ensued. The music master only succeeded in capturing one of the group of listeners. It was Matayu, the hunchback son of Mère Gamboche, who presided over a small booth for the sale of cakes and confections on the Champs-Élysées, and who lodged on the same story as Sylvie and her parents. Ah, I've got you, little rascal, have I? Have I not forbidden any listening at this door? Do you want to have your long ears chopped off? and the musician gave an emphatic pull, which must have produced a foretaste of this threatened punishment for the crime of listening. Ah, oh, have pity, have pity, Maitre Bougeot. I could not help it. Indeed, I could not. I heard her voice as I was going up the stairs with a bundle of charcoal from my mother, and I couldn't help stopping and listening. Besides, I have brought Mademoiselle Sylvia her bouquet. Here it is. Maitre Bougeot snatched the flowers and threw them into the passage. Sylvie, with more courage than could have been anticipated from her timid mien, now came forward. She quietly took up the humble nosegay, saying, Mitayo is so good he often brings me flowers. Indeed, I should never receive any were it not for him. He knows I like them only too well. Sometimes I fear he robs his sister, Nanette, who sells flowers for, of her wares. Pray don't be so hard on the poor boy, Maitre Bougeot. He loves music so much and has so few. She could not finish her sentence, for the music master thrust her aside. How dare you interfere, you little fright! What do you want with flowers? Do you think they'll make you any handsomer? Turning to Matayu, he added, Get out now, and let me catch you again. That's all! He rounded his sentence with a kick that sent the terrified cripple staggering along the entry. Then, closing the door savagely, he returned to the piano. Sylvie was roused by this cruelty to her unfortunate friend. She had, evidently, a high spirit. It's too bad, Maitre Bougeot, to treat Matayu so. Was it not the same means you are reproving him for taking that you first heard my voice? Was it not in passing our door to go to your own room that you heard me sing? And did you not often stop, just as he does? And one day, when I was singing in a rude style of my own, singing my own thoughts to my own tunes, did you not come in and snatch the sewing out of my hands and say I was made for singing, not sewing? And did you not propose to teach me? And now you punish Matayu for listening, a thing you did yourself. And you see no difference in my listening, and that little rascally hunchback daring to listen? You're an idiot, and I shall never make anything of you. What if I did hear you, and what if I did teach you, and what if I am wasting my time on you every day, as I have done for three years? You are too great a fool for any good to come out of my instructions. You'll never get an opportunity to use your voice and earn your bread by it. You needn't expect that you will. Ah, oh, no, sighed the mother. 
That's just what I always tell her. She'll never have an opportunity. It's a waste of time. And the hire of the piano, for which we have to stint ourselves so much, is money thrown away. I was always unlucky. Always. And so is everyone that belongs to me. Mother, you know that I do not believe in luck. And Maitre Bougeot cannot believe what he said. No, my master, you would not waste so many precious hours upon me if you believed your own words. You can tell me that, although I am as ugly as an owl, I have a great gift. I should not have known it if you had not told me, but this gift has been entrusted to me, perhaps in compensation for my ugliness and poverty. Who knows? God would not have consigned it to my knowing without granting me an opportunity of using it. That is my belief, my faith. All very fine, but faith is not a current coin that will buy bread. And you cannot always live on hope. It is the natural food of youth. After a few years of waiting and watching and disappointment, you will cease to hope as I do, and as millions have done before, and will do again. Not until I cease to believe in the good God, answered Sylvie gravely. And that will never be. Stop your preaching and come back to your lesson. You get your hopefulness from that reckless father of yours, and much good his inexhaustible stock of hope has done him. Left him nothing but this little hole to lodge his hopes in. Ah, nothing has ever prospered with him, murmured Madame de la Roche. He don't deserve to prosper, snarled Bougeot. He is always pursuing phantoms instead of marching under the banner of steady industry. But... I suppose we are to spend the rest of the evening in discussions. Sylvie's only reply was to resume her place by the piano. Maitre Bougeot churlishly took his seat, and the lesson continued. Sylvie's father belonged to an excellent family of Provence, a family who claimed to be the offshoot of nobility. Evard de la Roche was born and bred a gentleman, according to the European acceptation of the word, which means he was born and fitted for no occupation. A gentleman of the aristocratic do-nothing school. His father's income had been sufficiently large to enable him to live luxuriously with prudence, but the son chanced to be wholly deficient in that inestimable quality. When Evard became his father's heir, he found himself with ample means at his command. He proposed to his young wife that they should remove from Provence to Paris and see the world, Paris to a Frenchman being the only world worth recognizing. Hardly had they taken up their residence in the great capital when Monsieur de la Roche launched into numberless extravagances. He was one of those light-hearted, sanguine men, who never looked beyond the hour. He squandered his property in the most reckless manner. Now and then, as he felt his substance melting away, he embarked in some hazardous but Golconda-promising speculation, which usually left him poorer than before. In a few years his means were exhausted. He then resorted to borrowing from any source that was accessible. 
he had no scruples of delicacy for he always promised and intended to pay when he could but scorned to contemplate the possibility that such a day might never come he did not experience the faintest gratitude for these loans they were a matter of business he asserted he never economized the money thus acquired but often expended for an hour's indulgence a sum that would supply his family in food for a week by the time sylvie had entered her tenth year her father was reduced to such poverty that one after another all the valuables he possessed down to his wife's jewelry and clothes had been sold for bread he had wearied out the patience and drained the generosity of his former friends who shunned and finally cut the unscrupulous borrower the prospect of actual starvation now compelled him to exert himself but he found it difficult to secure employment and quite as hard to force himself to work when it was obtained he had latterly fallen in with a notary who supplied him with a small amount of copying drudgery for which he was scantily compensated madame de la roche resorted to her needle a woman's unfailing resource and earned a few francs a week sylvie aided her in this humble pursuit until the gift of her magnificent voice was discovered by maitre bougeot the music-master was a morose and seemingly selfish old man wretchedly poor but too proud and ascetic to assume a winning suavity and resort to cajoleries by which many a less skilful of his brethren gained pupils and won appreciation his few scholars barely enabled him to support a bedridden mother and the aged domestic who attended upon her but in spite of his hardness and coldness he adored his art all the deep-lying tenderness of his impenetrable soul found vent in music as stern as luther he was easily melted by melody while contemplating his ordinary appearance it was difficult to conceive the transforming softness produced upon him by harmonious sounds as it is to picture luther playing on his beloved flute or a sweet-sounding guitar and exclaiming with enthusiasm it is the art of the prophets it is only other arts which like theology can calm the agitation of the soul and put the devil to flight most assuredly nothing else had the power to put to flight the demons of ill-temper that perpetually haunted maitre bourgeot after the venerable musician by chance heard sylvie's wonderful contralto voice he paused to listen to it again and again until its underdeveloped capacity almost drove him wild one day losing all control over himself he burst into the room snatched away her work and exclaimed i'll teach you never touch a needle again then regarding her in undisguised disappointment added what a pity you are so ugly but it shall not matter that voice had caused him to picture to himself a face and form as nearly angelic as it could be found in mortal mould and his disappointment can only be estimated by those who feel equal idolatry for physical beauty the homely sylvie proved to be the most tractable and persevering of his students but the loss of her needle little as it earned and the expense of hiring even that old dilapidated piano 
which however maitre bougeot himself kept in the most perfect tune caused her parents to endure greater privations than ever her father with his usual buoyancy joyfully seized upon the new hope awakened by maitre bougeot and indulged in the wildest visions of the future but the mother's spirits were not revived by the cheering prospect she shook her head when sylvie and her father talked of prosperity and expressed her firm conviction that prosperity would never be a guest at their fireside in sylvie's disposition the two extremes which characterized the temperaments of her parents had been escaped the tendencies she inherited from one counterbalanced those imparted by the other a juste milieu was the happy sequence in place of the vaguely wild hopes of her father she possessed a cheerful confidence and instead of being prone to her mother's ceaseless anticipations of evil she experienced a placid preparation for disappointment as very possible and therefore very endurable sylvie's feeble frame betrayed the ill effects of her constant confinement and the unflagging diligence with which she studied she grew thinner and thinner and more and more pallid every day and yet an incomprehensible strength revealed itself in the sweet sounds that awoke beneath her attenuated fingers and issued from her colourless lips the strength of inspiration her child life had been grief sorrow had quickly ushered into her womanhood poverty and privation were familiar to her and she felt them less keenly than her parents the necessity of encountering the rude moods of her aesthetic master was a far greater trial she shrank from unkindness she yearned for the fostering voice of encouragement and approval but maitre bougeot was niggardly of commendation and her happiest efforts were only rewarded by a dubious growl far worse than this he often attacked her mother and unsparingly ridiculed her father's follies at such times sylvie's brave spirit was stirred to rebellion she conquered her awe took part in wordy warfare and boldly stood between her tutor and her parents diverting the wrath of the former to herself to shield those who were too fearful of his ill-will to resent his insolence when sylvie's lesson was concluded maitre bougeot instead of taking his departure turned to the table opened the old case that contained his violin gently took out the instrument and without comment sat down and played there could be no surer sign that he was pleased with his pupil sylvie crouched upon a low stool resting her weary head upon her mother's knees her large eyes were fixed intently upon her master and her whole soul flashed into her face now and then a low murmur of ecstasy broke from her parted lips and her slight frame quivered as though with an electric shock the mother's hand smoothed her daughter's silken hair and the habitual look of sorrow began to fade out of madame de la roche's wan face as though it had been swept away either by that flood of melody or by the contemplation of sylvie's silent rapture the trio had not heard the opening of the door and were unconscious that any one had entered the apartment though close beside maitre bougeot stood a tall and handsome man boyishly jovial in appearance his complexion was florid as that of a mountain maid 
his fair hair clustered over a low but exceedingly white brow his large eyes were of clear and very light blue his rosy mouth seemed especially fashioned for smiles though his dress was shabby in the extreme there was a certain degree of stylishness about his deportment which communicated itself to his attire perhaps his fine figure broad chest and rounded limbs would have given an air of elegance to any apparel maitre bougeot chanced to look up and with a scowl he instantly stopped playing and laid his violin in its case go on maitre bougeot said monsieur de la roche with a lively tone finish the strain it really is ravishing thank you i've played enough too much rather for i like to choose my audience and that was not aware of the honour of your presence well well do as you like said de la roche good-humouredly we must not quarrel with one who has been such a friend to my little girl here but maitre bougeot when will you obtain her a hearing just at this moment i am hard pressed for funds our treasury is reduced to its last franc and that confounded notary has no copying for me to-day there's nothing left that can be transferred to the pawnbroker sylvia's our only hope when will you get her a hearing that's the question in all possibility never answered bougeot gruffly i see no likelihood of an opportunity possibly she'll carry her voice unheard to the grave plenty of voices quite as fine have gone there unrecognized and more will follow ah sighed the mother that's just my belief i brought ill luck to everard by marrying him when i might have done so better and married a marquis only my evil stars would not permit it and now there's nothing but poverty and misery before us very convenient to lay your own bad taste monsieur de la roche's improvidence to the charge of the stars what have the stars to do with your making a bad choice in his squandering his fortune and rendering his family destitute bougeot snatched up his cap and with a dear violin under his arms shuffled out of the room without paying the least attention to monsieur de la roche's attempt at self-defence chapter one